Thanks, Ben. I thought I was going to have to compete with the air conditioning then. Uh, fortunately not. So as Ben said, yeah, we're going to do something slightly different tonight. Rather than just looking at a single passage of Scripture, we're going to be pulling in various different passages, mainly from the New Testament, to think about this theme of the means of mission. Those passages are going to come up on the screen. And also, you might find on your seat, there's a sheet of paper here that also has the passages on. Uh, if you haven't got one of those, Ben's also got a pile, so just raise your hand and he'll be able to bring you on. Now, in, in June 2003, a, a group of six British soldiers were killed by a mob while defending a police station some 120 miles north of Basra in Iraq. Uh, the Observer newspaper reported that it was, at that time, the greatest single loss of life of a military unit since the Falklands War. And it also reported what may have led to that tragic loss of life. The, the Army inquiry found that the men were unable to send even a single radio message requesting assistance to a, a battalion of elite paratroopers stationed nearby. Either the radio system wasn't working, or they couldn't access it, and so they couldn't ask for backup. And the result of that simple thing as not having a radio was the loss of their lives. This is something as simple and as mundane as a radio is perhaps not the first thing you might think of if you were making a list of the essential things for a military operation. I mean, surely that's about, it's about the weapons, right? Having the right ammunition. It's about having the body armor and the right vehicles. But actually, for, for a small unit of soldiers, having those things is of limited use if you lose the ability to call on a power greater than your own if you lose the ability to call on a guidance from your commanding officers. Because see, something as simple as a radio lets you call for reinforcements. It lets you ask for instructions. Um, it lets you request covering fire or, or request airstrikes when you're pinned down by the enemy. Having a functioning radio is often the difference between the success and failure of a mission. Without that, a squad of soldiers would be on their own. They would have to complete the mission entirely out of their own resources. And that almost certainly would end in failure. Because you see, there are certain things that though maybe they're not the main instrument by which a mission is, is carried out, are nevertheless so vital to the mission that without them, it cannot succeed. Without them, all the other means at your disposal would be ineffective. And for us, in fulfilling the mission that we have as a church, prayer is that thing. Uh, ben reminded us, didn't he, from, from that reading, what the mission is. It's that work of making disciples of Jesus by the proclamation of the good news of his death and resurrection by living out the transforming effects of that good news. It's that mission that was first of all given to the apostles and then was handed on down through the generations of the church to continue. It's what should be central to our ministry as a church. It should be what, it should be what shaping and guiding everything that we do. 
And what I simply want to remind you of tonight is that an essential means of this mission, the thing without which it's likely to prove fruitless, is prayer. And we're going to split our time in two tonight. First of all, we're going to look at why prayer is so essential to mission. And second, we're going to think about what it looks like to pray in in a mission-minded way. So first of all, why is prayer so vital? We're going to look at a few different New Testament passages to get a sense of what this mission involves and therefore of why prayer is so important. So first passage, here's Paul, one of the apostles, one of the original group of people commissioned by God to this task, writing to Christians in Ephesus. And he says, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins, in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is, at, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So in this passage, Paul is reminding those believers in Ephesus of what state they were in before they came to Christ. They were dead. I mean, it's a kind of strange kind of death because it talks about them living and following the ways of this world. In fact, it's the worst kind of death. They were spiritually dead. That's what people are like by nature. And if there's one thing we know about dead people, it's that they can't do anything for themselves. Dead people can't hear. Dead people can't see. Dead people can't even respond to good news. And if there's a second thing we know about dead people, it's that human beings don't have the power to make them alive again. You see, the mission is, this mission is to make disciples of people who are spiritually dead, people who are unable to rouse themselves from, from their spiritual stupor, people who don't even have the life in them to, to respond to the best news in the world if it was flashing in front of them in a giant neon sign. So that's the first thing about this mission. It's to people who are spiritually dead. Uh, But we get a hint of something else in this passage, don't we? We see that there's an opponent, someone who's who's exercising influence and sway over people. This passage describes him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Here's another passage from later on in this same letter to the Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we're not in peacetime. We actually find ourselves in the middle of a war as we carry out this mission, we're opposed by by dark and demonic forces. Forces of evil in the heavenly realms, led by Satan himself, the devil, the father of lies, the accuser, whose powers and influence dwarfs our own. So that's the second thing. This mission involves trying to reach people who are spiritually dead in the face of cosmic-level 
demonic opposition. Next, here's, here's Paul again in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, this mission is not like the movies. It's not like films. In films, we see the same story over and over again, don't we? The people who are called to carry out the seemingly impossible mission just happen to be equipped with extraordinary powers, whether that's superpowers in your Marvel slash DC slash X-Men franchises, or it's your, your uber-competent, highly trained Jason Bourne slash James Bond characters equipped with abilities far beyond that of mortal men. But, but this mission is very different. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of that. God calls weak, imperfect, sin-struggling people like you and me to participate in this mission. People who are unimpressive, people without any special powers. I mean, these verses are actually quite humbling, aren't they? They're pretty unflattering to us. So the passage suggests that the, the normal way in which God operates, his modus operandi, is to, is to deliberately choose the people who are weak and unimpressive. It's like he went through the CVs and deliberately picked out the worst ones. So do you, you get the picture. The nature of this mission to make disciples is weak, unimpressive people trying to reach people who are dead in the face of cosmic level demonic opposition. Now imagine if we tried to ful fulfill that mission out of our own innate abilities and powers. Frank Zappa, the, the musician, once famously said about rock journalism, music journalism. He, he described it as people who can't write interviewing people who can't speak for people who can't read. And for us to attempt this mission of making disciples in our own strength and ability, it would be a case of people who can't speak calling people who can't hear opposed by demons we can't beat. Humanly speaking, it is an impossible mission. But that's the whole point. It's not a mission that we're supposed to try and accomplish alone in our own strength, by our own resources, even though we can often fall into the trap of trying. We can be so bought into this, this view of human beings as the saviors of the world that we're able through our own techniques and, and resources and project management skills to, to do this task on our own. Uh, but as we thought about at the beginning of, of last week's service, it's not our mission, it's God's mission. We're only on mission because first and foremost, God is on mission. Because he has a plan to save rebellious people that he's been working out ever since our first ancestors fell. Listen to what he, he says in Isaiah. 
The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. God himself has rolled up his sleeve and bared his mighty arm to save and redeem. He's working out his mission. We see that supremely, don't we, in in God the Son himself taking on flesh, stepping into our world, dying in our place for our sins, and rising again for our justification. He's promised to save a people as numerous as the, the, the grains of sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And he promises that he will complete this task. Remember the the sentence right at the end of the Great Commission that Ben read. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, our Lord doesn't leave us alone to take on this task. He sends his spirit to, to transform us, to empower us to endure faithfully in it. He gives his believers gifts for ministry and service through his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the world doing those things that we cannot do, convicting of sin, bringing new life so that people can respond to that glorious message of hope in Jesus, giving sight to the spiritually blind and hearing to the spiritually deaf. We cannot change people's hearts. That is not in our gift. For that, we are utterly reliant on God. We're called to plant and to water but it's God who gives the growth. We can't stand in our own strength against the devil, against the evil one, but in Christ, God gives us armor for the fight. And that's why prayer is so vital in this mission. Because prayer is the thing that brings together weak and needy people with the awesome creator power of the living God who has rolled up his sleeves to save, who delights to work through us. Prayer is the expression of our utter dependence on him. It's the power that moves the arm of God. John Piper, the pastor, says that prayer is like the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world by which we we call upon the living God for, for guidance and supply and reinforcement and protection. And God, in his sovereign wisdom, has chosen to build his kingdom in the world through weak people who constantly and continually rely on him in prayer. I love what um, Ben and Emily Clark said in their latest newsletter. I'm sure a number of you get it. They said this, Who indeed can understand the ways of the Lord? He doesn't need us, yet he calls us anyway. Why? Because in his plan, glory, his glory will ultimately shine all the more brightly through weaker vessels like us. Prayer is the indispensable means for mission. And actually, if, if, if you survey the New Testament, if you look through it, you'll see that prayer is this constant thread that's running through the inauguration of God's kingdom. I, I had an entirely extra point to this sermon, taking us through the New Testament to show you that, but I realized that then this would be the longest sermon in church history. So I'm going to try and give you the condensed two-minute version of it. 
the double espresso version. So first of all, looking at Jesus, we see prayer at every key stage in his ministry. When he's baptized, Luke records it, it's as he's praying that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove on him, that he's declared to be the beloved Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. As we saw in Mark recently, when the overwhelming popularity of his healing ministry threatens to to pull him away from the work that he came to do, the work of preaching the good news of God's kingdom, what does he do? He withdraws to a desolate place and he prays. And he's able to resist that pressure and carry on with his true mission. When he appoints the 12 to be his apostles, the ones who would be entrusted with this gospel mission after his ascension, he does so only after spending an entire night in prayer and at the climax of his earthly mission. As he approaches the cross, prayer comes to the fore. At Gethsemane, as he contemplates the horrors of the cross before him, as he contemplates drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sins down to its very dregs, of being forsaken by his father, the one whose smile he's only, is the only thing he's known for all eternity as he contemplates the father's face being turned away from him. How is it, how is it that he is able to stare into the abyss and yet step forward towards it? Well, it's through prayer, agonizing prayer, great drops of sweat falling like blood prayer, You see, at every key moment in Jesus fulfilling his earthly mission, we find him in prayer. And this is Jesus. This is is the one who is fully God as well as fully man. We've seen in Mark, haven't we? He he stills violent storms with a word. He raises a dead girl. He's the one in whom all creation holds together. Yet he continually turns to his father in prayer. And if Jesus devoted himself to prayer in fulfilling his mission, how much more should we? But it's not only in the life of Jesus that we we see this prayer. We see it woven throughout the growth of the church in the New Testament. When Peter and John are arrested by the authorities and threatened, they're told never to speak in that name again. The believers pray. The room shakes. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They go on speaking boldly, and the church grows. We read in Acts that the apostles devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and the church grows. When the church sends out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, it's with prayer. When the gospel grows beyond the borders of Israel, when it it moves from being just a Jewish-only movement to incorporating the rest of humanity, prayer is prominent. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit when, Peter, when um, Peter and John arrived to pray for them. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, received the Holy Spirit after God responds to the prayers of a devout, God-fearing Roman centurion called Cornelius. See, at all the key milestones in the growth of God's kingdom, as it grows from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, prayer is present. If you unroll the the tapestry of the story of God building his kingdom in the the New Testament, you see this ever-present thread of prayer running through it. 
And if we're to be a mission-minded people, it must be a thread that's woven right through the life of our church as well. That's why one of the those list of values that we aspire to as a church is we pray before we act. And please don't mishear that. It's not saying that there's acting, there's useful stuff over here that we can do and prayer is, is over here. It's not really acting, it's something different. No, no, prayer is the enabling activity that undergirds all of our mission. It's the activity that has to be before and behind and around every ministry we do. It's that activity without which we won't be fruitful in mission. And it's an activity that nearly all of us can do. So that's the first part. Prayer is an essential means of mission. Uh, but you might be a, a new Christian here tonight, or, or you might, like me, be a Christian who struggles to know what particular things we can pray for when it comes to mission. So secondly, we're just going to quickly look at how can we pray in a mission-minded way? What does that look like? Now, this is in no way going to be exhaustive, but I just want to highlight five things that we can read in the New Testament that can help us in what we pray for when we pray for mission. First one is this. Pray that God would do what he's promised to do. Uh, Gary Miller, who's the principal of a theological college in, in Queensland in Australia, he's written a book called Calling on the Name of the Lord. And it, in it, he looks through the whole of the Bible and trying to understand what is at the heart of biblical prayer. And actually what he finds, what he shows is that the heart of prayer in the Bible is asking God to do what he's already promised to do. See, God has promised to build the church of Jesus until he returns, to bring people in from every tribe and nation and tongue through the gospel, by his spirit, to bring to completion the work that he's begun in believers. And at its core, biblical prayer is calling on God to do that, to do what he's promised. It's asking him to further his agenda in the world. And we see that, don't we, at the start of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's calling on God to build his kingdom, the kingdom of his son, to make worshippers of himself, whose delight is to do his will. So, number one, calling on the name of the Lord, asking him to do what he has promised, is at the heart of missional prayer. Number two, pray that God will raise up workers for the harvest field. There's actually only two places in the Gospels where Jesus tells his disciples the contents of what they should pray. The first we've just thought about, it's the Lord's Prayer, the one that everyone knows. But what we don't often give as much weight or attention to is this one. Here it is in Luke's account. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. See, there's always a need for more workers in God's plentiful harvest field. And so this might look like praying for God to, to raise up people like 
Ben and Emily Clark, people to take the gospel to, to places where it's, where it's spiritually dry, where Jesus isn't named. It might be praying that he would raise up pastors and teachers and, and gospel workers in our own land. But I don't think it's only about paid full-time workers. It's also praying for God to raise up ordinary people from every walk of life to be reaching those around them, reaching those in their own small sphere of influence with the good news of Jesus. It is a vital prayer. But as many have pointed out, it's also a dangerous prayer because the answer to that prayer sometimes turns out to be the person praying it. Number two, pray that God will raise up workers for the harvest field. Number three, pray that God will open doors and hearts. Listen to this prayer request from Paul that he sends to the believers in Colossae. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. And one of the symptoms of living in a, a secular Western society is that people can be fairly closed to talking about deeper things, certainly to talking about things perceived to be religious. Maybe that's a generational thing, maybe it's changing in younger generations, but certainly my generation and older, people are very closed Opportunities to talk about the gospel can be few and far between. Secularism, material comfort have, have had this spiritually dampening effect on society. So we need to recognize that every opportunity that we have is a divine gift. And therefore we need to be praying that, that God in his sovereign power will be working to provide opportunities for his word to be heard and believed that we, he would open a door for, for this message of life in the lives of our, our families and our friends and our, our colleagues, our neighbors. Pray for the opportunities that are coming up as part of a passion for life. Pray that through them, God would open a door for his word to be heard and believed. And pray too for open hearts. This is, this is what we read in Acts about, about Lydia one of the first European converts to Christ. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We've thought, haven't we, that though we can place the message, the good news of Jesus before people, it's only God who can open their heart to respond. So let's pray that people who come to hear the, the good news through the passion for life, pray that God would open their hearts to respond to that and to receive it. Number four, pray for boldness. Here's Paul again in, in Ephesians 6. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. 
these verses come at the end of the, the passage we looked at earlier about the spiritual battle that we're, fa- we're facing. And we know, don't we, that speaking of Jesus is a battle. The world is not neutral when it comes to Jesus. As Rico Tice puts it, speaking of him involves crossing a pain line, putting yourself in the place of potentially being rejected or ridiculed or mocked, of losing friends, or much worse if you're living in many of the countries of the world today. So there's a, there's a fear that stalks our attempts to share the good news. For me, it's fear of man. Fear that I will be thought less of. Fear that the people will think I'm an idiot. Fear that people will react angrily. If ever there's an area that we need to be praying about today, praying for, it's for boldness. So pray for your leaders. Pray for those in ministry whose full-time calling it is to declare God's word. Pray that in a society where Increasingly, there might be consequences for faithfully proclaiming the whole of Scripture, that they would have boldness to do so. And pray for each other that that God would deliver us all from fear of man and give us boldness to speak up for him. Finally, number five, pray for the unity and Christ-likeness of the church. One of the things that you can't miss if you look through any of Paul's letters in the New Testament is his prayers for the churches, for for the people that he's writing to, that they would grow into full maturity in Christ, grow in in love for one another and knowledge of God. And now you might be thinking, okay, well, but what's that got to do with mission? In fact, it's critical for mission. Why? Because the local church despite it being a collection of forgiven sinners, is God's chosen and most effective way of reaching the lost. As we love one another, as we worship together, as we live as a distinctive, grace-filled community, we put on display the glory of Christ to the world around us. That's why it's so important that we're growing in Christ-likeness, It's also why it's so damaging when a church is disunited, when a church is compromising with the world and compromising with sin. So pray, pray for your brothers and sisters, pray for your fellow life group members, pray that we would be growing in grace and the knowledge of him. Pray that we'd be be growing in holiness and unity and love for one another because without that, we won't be effective in our witness to the communities around us. So they are just five things that we can learn about prayer from the New Testament. So the challenge is, will we pray? Uh, Believe me, none of what I've said tonight is coming from a position of someone who has this sorted. Uh, I'm not standing in front of you as someone for whom this is anything other than a huge struggle in which I often fail. And the reality is, it is going to be a struggle because our enemy fears the power of prayer more than almost anything else. And so he's the main thing he strives to keep people away from because prayer is an essential means of mission. So my prayer is that we would be increasingly 
a praying church. Will you join me as I pray? Father, it is astonishing that you would choose to use us in the declaration of the good news of the Lord Jesus, in your work of building his kingdom, in your great plan of salvation. And we realize, Lord, we recognize just what a humanly impossible call that is. But we thank you that, uh, that through prayer we have access to the throne room of the one who is utterly sovereign, the one who rules the universe, the one who can open eyes, the one who can raise the dead. And Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts again just the importance of prayer for us as a church seeking to be on mission for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray. Father, we pray that you would empower us and strengthen us so that we might be faithful to this mission that we've been called to. We pray that you would work through us in all our weakness, in all our inability, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the music starts, uh, we're going to stand and sing together.